Welcome back to another episode of the Best Minutes Podcast. Each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1946 William Wyler-directed film, The Best Years of Our Lives. One minute of screen time per episode. Hello, I am Professor Robert E.G. Black, host of, among other shows, Annihilation Minute, looking at the 2018 science fiction film Annihilation, one minute per episode, one episode per week. I will be your host for Minute 92. As the dawn begins to break, I see headlights. The farm is just a ways down the road. I wonder if she knows I'm coming, and I wonder if she is there alone. It's been a year since the war called me. I went away to do what I had to do. It's been a year since I held her in my arms. It's been a year she's had time to choose. I've seen many soldiers get the letter. Letters from someone that said goodbye. And each time the mail, when it would come, I would brace myself and worry if I got mine. Now it's been a year and I'm coming home, but time can change one's mind sometimes. And if she's waiting like she said she would that today will be the day I make her mine. I kept every letter that she wrote. In battle, I kept them close to my heart. She has always been the world to me. I couldn't imagine my life without my sweetheart. As I pull into the drive, I can see someone has raised a flag with one lone star, and I can see a banner just beneath, and I read as I pull up in the car. The love of my life is fighting for your life. Dear God, please let him come back home to me. Bill Simmons, Soldier Coming Home, a song. The thing is, his name is not Johnny. His name is not Joe. It is Homer. And this brings me over to, at the time of scripting, my show Annihilation Minute, because I have been dealing with Homer's Odyssey a lot over there recently, especially the characterization of Penelope, who stayed behind and remained loyal to her husband, who went off to war. And I do not think the choice of name here is a coincidence, which has me wondering about the other names in this story. I still have not watched the film, by the way, but I have read McKinley Cantor's novel, In Verse, Glory for Me, on which the film is based. I do not yet know how closely the film adapts the novel's main beats. I do know that it does not adapt Homer the way he is in the novel. In the film, this scene at least, he seems to be missing his hands, and physically, that is all. In the novel, it is something very different. Another figure. This was a death, one piece of death. Alive on its right side and dying, jerking on its left. It walked with pain and twisted muscles. It was so young, it has a face without a beard. Its name was Wormles, Homer, Seaman, second class. But working as a gunner's mate, the night torpedo struck. He went in as a child, as many went. He came out as a monster. In his brain, a little telephone was doing things. And all so wrong, so very wrong indeed. A little telephone said to his arms, You do not have to swing the way that arms should sway. A little telephone spoke to his leg, and told it foolish things to do. Spasticity, they diagnosed a dozen times. But Homer's head was jerking nonetheless. He held it to one side, and when he spoke, he used a method of the men who tell the jokes, the hairlip tales, the jests that people speak, with lips held tight against their teeth. So that was how he talked. And that was how he'd talk till he was right again, if ever he was right. He is only 19, diagnosed with spastic athetosis, suffering from hemoplegia and ataxia. His cerebellum has been injured, a traumatic brain injury. Chang, et al., Critical Reviews in Physical and Rehabilitation Medicine, 2013, explain. Quote, Spasticity is a velocity-dependent increase in muscle tone and uncontrolled repetitive involuntary contractions of skeletal muscles. Spasticity presents as upper motor neuron symptoms in patients with central nervous system pathology such as stroke, spinal cord injury, brain injury, or multiple sclerosis. As a result, a patient can have significant pain and limited mobility, which can lead to decreased quality of life and difficulty maintaining personal care. End quote. A harder sell in a visual medium, surely. 
But was that because no one wanted to see an actor pretending at it for two hours, or because no one wanted to imagine a soldier coming home that way? One of the primary treatments for spastic paralysis in 1946 was the use of curare, that is, chondrodendron tomentosum, also known as South American aerotip poison. Evergreen.edu explains, quote, Indigenous South Americans, like the Makushi tribes, used this secondary metabolite to their advantage. They created a paste from the curare plant's bark and lined their arrows with this poisonous substance. The effects of D-tubocurine were only seen when the plant entered into the bloodstream. Victims of the poison-lined arrows would quickly enter paralysis, and death followed soon after. However, the curare plant wasn't only used to kill. This plant soon raised the interest of European scientists in the mid-20th century who found a way to use its deadly neurotoxin as a muscle relaxant. This was an extremely useful tool to doctors when someone was under anesthesia. This plant gained popularity as the medical field expanded its horizons. Small doses of this plant allowed doctors to perform practices on their patients with no movement. End quote. Captain David F. James and Lieutenant Colonel Spencer Braden advanced the use of curare as a treatment of spasticity in the Journal of Neurosurgery, January 1946, specifying, quote, This procedure must necessarily be reserved for those cases in which not even the slightest improvement can be anticipated, because the operation itself is a disabling one. End quote. But I was talking about names. Wormels, Homer. Wormels, a German name. The Wormel family motto, Noli me tingere. Do not touch me. Except he is not Wormels in the film. He is Parrish. The area around a church committed to one pastor, but also, homophonically, to die. Homer, an obvious reference to the Greek writer, specifically as the presumed author of the Iliad and the Odyssey. The war story and the story of the soldiers fighting their way back to a normal life. Their women waiting. Their children waiting. Our other veteran lead we will see this minute is Fred Derry. Fred is a peaceful ruler. Derry, a variant of Daira, referring to an oak grove and often a suffix on place names. But Fred Derry is not in a peaceful place, nor is he even at peace. Again, I have not watched the film yet, so maybe Fred's situation is not so bad in the film. In Cantor's novel, Fred Derry rejects on his first night back the woman he married just before leaving for the war. He has an immediate attraction to Peggy, the daughter of our other lead, Al Stevenson, who I will get to in a moment, though we will not see him this minute. But he feels outclassed, inferior, and he decides to rob the local bank that is, as far as he knows, managed by that same Al Stevenson. And Homer tries to kill himself. I have trouble imagining a film in 1946, even one trying deliberately to present the difficulties of returning soldiers, taking such dark turns, but we will see. So many other towns where men came home, so many men who didn't come home to other towns. Al Stevenson, Alton Marrow Stevenson III, Alton, Old Town, Alton is the oldest of the trio, middle-aged, married with children, Marrow, Aside from the obvious reference to bone marrow, where blood cells are produced, where life is produced, as a name, marrow is likely a variant of Marwa, an old Scandinavian name referring to a companion, a mate, a fellow worker. While Al has trouble working his bank job, he is probably the most stable and undamaged of the three men. And on their first night back, he brings the two others back to his own house after they have been out drinking. Stevenson, son of Stephen, of course, and Stephen is Greek, referring to a wreath, a crown, honor, fame. And that third means his family has some wealth, even if his wife and children have been renting out their house and living in a smaller place in his absence. Minute 92 begins still in Homer's bedroom. In Cantor's novel, he spends some nights at Fred's place after drinking too much because there is a brief period somewhere between starting to drink and being too drunk that Homer's slurred speech is a little more understandable. 
Plus, the alcohol drowns away some of the physical and emotional pain of his life. With only his hands missing, I do not know how this will play in the film. Also, I expected, and have confirmed, that Harold Russell was not an actor previous to the role of Homer Wormels, or Homer Parrish. According to his IMDb bio, Russell was training paratroopers at Camp McCall, North Carolina, 6 June 1944, when some TNT exploded in his hands. He was chosen for an army training film called Diary of a Sergeant, and William Wyler saw that and cast him as Homer. He received two Oscars, one for Best Actor in a Supporting Role, and an honorary award for bringing hope and courage to his fellow veterans. The only person to win two Oscars for playing the same role. Unlike his character, who dropped out of high school to go fight in the war and has not yet turned 20 in the novel, Russell was 32 when the film was made. Homer's father puts out the cigarette in the ashtray on the bedside table. Homer still exhales smoke from his nose. Slowly. Patiently. His father pats him on the shoulder on his way to the door. Mr. Parrish. Night, son. He grabs something from off the dresser. Without turning toward him, Homer responds. Homer. Good night, Pop. Thanks. Mr. Parrish slowly closes the door, looking in on Homer as he goes. When Homer arrives home in the novel, there is an audience of horror on the porch. They hadn't known his arm would flap like that. They hadn't known he'd throw his leg around. The letters he had sent to them were sane and written with his good right hand. No one had thought his face would pull and squeeze until the baby mouth was tightened out of shape. No one had known he'd flop and dance so gaily as he walked. Mr. Parrish does not close the door all the way. Homer remains sitting, facing the bedside table, as the scene fades to black. Maybe looking at that photo of Wilma, not Corrine, the neighbor girl who he thinks will want nothing to do with him in the novel. When he imagines the prom in the novel, the film gowns, the boys who danced, tall smarties debonair of limb, and Homer saw himself grotesque upon a folding chair, and watching Wilma dance with other boys, or worse than that, he saw her nursing him, a martyr of renunciation at his side. Not that. Not that. The thing is, he imagines this after Wilma invites him. He cannot separate his image of himself from what he thinks others must see. And when he finds Wilma with books, a study in spasticity, and the brain from ape to man, he cannot fathom that she is trying to connect with him. He screams, The brain from ape to man? So what, you think I'm kind of like an ape? A monkey, huh? The hell with you. I hope you're having lots of fun. Oh sure, keep on and read some books like this. Spasticity. It must be fun for you. Keep on, amuse yourself. She didn't say a single word. She couldn't say a single word. She'd only lived for eighteen years. Those years had never taught her what to say. At such a time as this, she put her head down on the seat. It wasn't pleasant when she cried. She didn't sob politely, but she bawled. And when he kept on, jeering, long insulted, hating her, she raised a white face, streaming tears. She shrieked, Oh, go away! My God, why don't you go away? He went away. He tottered off next door. He swore. The toads and adders issued forth in every word he spat. Before all this, she had Homer's picture on her dresser and called him hers, her sailor. He was hers. To gush about, to cry about, to love. To spat within the letters that she wrote. To build imagined marriages. They were not engaged. They were too young. They didn't know a thing. She was his girl and wore a navy pin on her school sweater. We fade up on Marie Derry, relaxed on a couch, a magazine open on her lap. She is fixing her eye makeup in a handheld mirror. Cigarette butts sit in an ashtray on the coffee table. On that table, a few other magazines, including the June 1946 issue of Movie Life with Rita Hayworth on the cover. 
also another copy of the same magazine that is in her lap. Marie wears a shiny dress and shinier jewelry, bracelets, and necklace earrings. This is not the Marie of the novel. Or maybe it is. She had a row with Hortense, Fred's stepmother, after spending the money Fred sent her on clothes, and she moved out of Fred's parents' house. She had been selling tickets at the Alamo movie theater, but had a nightclub job by the time Fred returns. Fred asks his father where she lives now. At Pine and 23rd, that building on the corner? Kitchenettes? Yes, said Fred Derry. It was built before the war. The Lorelei. There was so much. He might have asked so much. He might have said. He'd known Marie for seven days before they married. They had spent twelve nights together, only twelve. After the twelfth night, he was gone away. She wrote him she was pregnant, and he had her move up to Boone City with his folks. She wrote again, a false alarm, she said. But she kept living there. Four times she'd cabled him, telling him she needed money. Each time he sent the money that she asked. 860 bucks in all, besides the regular amount each month. The boys he flew with knew her face. He had her picture on the wall, with Lana Turner, Hildegard, Priscilla Lane, and nameless girls with satin skin and slinky gowns from Mount Esquire. The boys declared Marie to be the best. They whistled wolf notes at her gleaming hair and black chiffon. Woo-woo, they yelped. They called her Derry's diamond-studded tail. Hey, listen, that's my wife. Yeah, said Kidorsky. How's about her number when I finish up and go back to the States? I'll call her, Derry. How's about that telephone? Woo-woo. Kodorsky finished over Vegisac. It was his 22nd op. They burned up all the way, and Derry watched them burn. In times like that, you thought the oxygen was out. You couldn't breathe. Woo-woo. Jazzy music plays on a nearby radio. Someone fiddles with a door handle out of frame to the left, and Marie looks. We angle from across the room as the door opens between us and Marie. There is a photo on the wall of Marie and Fred in his uniform. Fred enters. He has a cardboard box over one arm. Fred. Hello, Hello babe. Marie. What you got there? there? Fred. Our, our supper. supper. Cream, Cream of corn, corn soup, soup, potato, potato salad, salad, salami, and liverwurst. He walks around the table and couch, and she puts down her things and gets up to follow him. In the novel, when Fred finds Marie, he has been walking the streets of Boone City, thinking about how he has changed. I had not known so many people that I came to know. I had not known the chilly wind of Chevelston, the quiet road to Rushton Green, or Key Club far in Bedford Town. I had not known, when lying with Marie, the rubble of London waste. I had not heard the sirens rain, or watched the searchlights meet and cross. Marie, Marie, I never knew the heart of life in chewing at your heart. I had not seen the sky at Kiel, the pattern of Berlin the insect maze of Nantes, the Swinefurt flare, and Cassel dust, and fighters over ham, and 20,000 feet of smoke built up so high from holes. I had not seen Gadorsky's fort go down. Come, Derry's diamond-studded tail, polish the brass within your hair, squeak like a mouse, scratch like a cat, and try to harm my soul. You can't. I love you not, and I know no proper path of love, but I'm between your legs tonight or I'm unworthy of the 305th and quite unworthy of my youth, my age and pain and all I've seen unworthy of the hundred deaths I've died. He finds her living under her maiden name, Marie Lundell. 2E, he stood beside her door and heard another man inside. He'd known there'd be another man. He'd known it all along and never recognized the knowledge until now. Fred pushed upon the bell 
In later times he counted up the words he said, the words she said, the words said by the other man. They rolled away like beads from off a broken string. He couldn't count them all. He didn't want to count them all. He has been with nine other women in the two years he has been gone. Marie has been with other men. Fred is not nice about all this. He runs the other man out. He goes through Marie's closet. He hits her. And ultimately he tells her he doesn't want her anymore. Tells her to file for divorce. In the film, I guess they try to make a go at it. Being married. Maybe because Dana Andrews, who plays Fred, is 37. Not 21, as Fred is in the novel. This marriage is meant to be a little more seasoned. A little more mature. Less spur of the moment. Marie. We're going to Jackie's hotspot. I phoned and made a reservation. In the kitchen, Fred removes his coat. The calendar on the wall is one of artwork by Lawson Wood, famous for his Collier's magazine covers of apes. In fact, Clarence Lawson Wood was a soldier in the British Royal Flying Corps. He was decorated by the French for his gallantry at Vimy Ridge during World War I. He was awarded membership in the Royal Zoological Society in 1934 because of his concern for animal welfare, and he established a sanctuary for aged animals. His Grandpop's annuals were circulated around the world. The first of the month is on Monday, so it is April or July 1946. There are empty bottles of Schlitz beer and Coca-Cola on the counter next to a silver percolator, saved for the little money they would get for recycling them, presumably. Fred, we're eating at home. He hangs his coat out of frame to the left. Marie, what's, what's the matter, matter honey? Are you sick, sick or something? something? Fred, no, oh dear. Broke. She walks past him and looks at him head on. Marie, broke? Bro. Fred, you, you got, got it. it. Marie, well, what, what happened? happened? Where, Where did, did it go, go to? to? As he answers, Fred takes the lid off the percolator and removes the insides, puts some coffee from a nearby jar into it. Fred, we spent it, babe. That's, That's what, what happened. happened. I'm sorry, I'm sorry it's so, so sudden. sudden. I didn't I tell you the money was, was almost gone, gone because every day. Everything. And that's where we leave Fred and Marie. Marie wants a night out. Fred is making coffee for a night in. They are not doing well financially, and we'll hear more about them next time. Thank you for listening. I have been Professor Robert E. G. Black. Among my various shows, you can find me as the host of Annihilation Minute, taking an in-depth look at the Alice Garland written and directed science fiction film, Annihilation with scientific research, behind-the-scenes details, and notes from the novel and other works, including the aforementioned Odyssey. You can find Annihilation Minute on all the obvious podcatchers and on social media. Or you can go to lemmingdrops.com for links for that show and all my other shows, my guest spots, my Groundhog Day Project blog, and more. You can find the Best Minute Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play, or at the main site, thebestminutes.com. Or follow the show on social media at Butch's Place. The Best Years of Our Lives Listeners Cafe on Facebook and on Twitter at The Best Minutes. Please join me here next time on The Best Minutes Podcast. Hey, Joe, you better hurry up out there because she's taking off soon. Right, thanks. Come on, Taylor.